Well, good morning. Uh, again, my name is Will Nettleton. I'm the RUF campus minister at Trinity University in San Antonio. How many of you know what RUF is? If I say RUF, quick raise of hands. Okay, good. More viewing. Sometimes I preach and nobody knows what that is. So uh, for those of you who don't, I never like to assume that everyone does. RUF is our denomination's college campus ministry. So about uh, 45 years ago now, um, our denomination decided that college campuses were such a strategic context um, that we couldn't wait on college students to come to us. We needed to go to them. Uh, we needed to send ministers uh, to the campus. And we've been doing that uh, ever since then. We're on over 150 campuses now, including at Trinity in San Antonio and UTSA uh, as well nearby. So I'm thankful to get to work for you and work on your behalf uh, on campus. Uh, thank you for those of you who pray for us and support us. Uh, it's always a privilege to get to be back uh, here at Hope with y'all. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Mark uh, chapter 4. Uh, I wanted to look uh, at this parable this morning. Um, as a campus minister, it is really easy for me to struggle with doubt. Uh, doubt that what we're doing is effective, uh, that what we're doing is working. I ask that question a lot, actually. Is anything we're doing really working? And while I love my job, there are plenty of days uh, where results can be discouraging. I'm sure that can happen in your job as well. Uh, days where students seem to choose sin and self over Jesus. Days where the gospel seems to fall on deaf ears. Days when I myself seem to be going backwards spiritually. And uh, it raises the question, what do we do when by all appearances nothing seems to be happening? The things that we're doing for Jesus uh, don't seem to be working. Uh, his kingdom is not coming quite as quickly as we would like. What do we do? How do we respond to that? Uh, perhaps you've had that same question in your own life. One of your children is wandering from the faith. You've prayed for them every day. You text them Bible verses regularly. You plead with them to reconsider. And it seems like nothing's happening. Maybe you've shared the gospel with a neighbor time and time again. You've tried different strategies. You've read different books. You've tried all the different approaches. And no matter what you do, they're completely unresponsive. Maybe in your own life, you've been in a season of spiritual dryness for as long as you can remember. You've tried everything that you can think of to dig out, and nothing seems to help. As we find ourselves in those situations, what do we do? As the question becomes, what now? How do we answer that? I picked this parable for us to look at in Mark chapter 4 uh, because it encapsulates one of my favorite sayings that we repeat to ourselves a lot within RUF, one of the things that they try to hammer into us as campus ministers. One of the things that we assume as we go to work on, co on college campuses is that God is at work. Before even we go to work, that God is at work. That God is at work even when all appears lost. When it doesn't even look like anything is happening, when nothing seems to be working, God is at work. So let me pray for us, and then we'll uh, turn our attention to the text. We're looking at Mark uh, 4, 26 through 29, but let me pray, and we'll ask God to join us by His Spirit. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we do ask you now that you would uh, be with us, that you would send your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see wonderful things from your Word. You know, that even as Moses told the people that your word is no empty word, no vain word, it is our very life. Uh, even as we read this morning, that it does not return to you void. It accomplishes everything that you set it out to do. And so we pray that you would keep that promise this morning. Whatever your purposes for this word are, God, would they be accomplished. We pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This is Mark chapter 4. 
verses 26 through 29. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, how many of you remember the old Looney Tunes cartoons? I'm thinking of the Marvin Martian one, where the the joke would be this villainous character sets up a bomb, right? They set up a trap for maybe the protagonist. They get safely out of the blast radius. They pull out one of those detonators with the big red button, right? They hold it high for dramatic effect, and they press the button, and nothing happens, right? They press it. They click it a few more times, click, 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 and still nothing In the words of Marvin the Martian, he says it in that high-pitched voice, which I won't do to save us all the embarrassment. But he says, where's the kaboom? There's supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. And of course, he goes back to check on it. This often happens in Looney Tunes. He goes to check on the bomb to check and make sure that the wires didn't get crossed. And the minute that he gets close to it, it blows up in his face. It's a hilarious joke. But the question he asks there is a great one. Where's the kaboom? I love that question. It's an expectant question. Things are supposed to go a certain way. We've come to expect a certain result, and something has gone wrong. Where is the kaboom? Uh, The first century follower of Jesus, as they listened to Jesus uh, talk, might have described their experience with a similar question, right? Jesus is before them. He is the long-awaited Messiah, here to turn back the tide of evil, set the world to rights, deliver them from the oppressive Roman government, He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and people are excited. They're like, great, here we go. Now it's about to happen. Let's do this, Jesus. Bring on the kingdom. And then Jesus spends his whole earthly ministry subverting their expectations. He heals the sick and tells them to love their enemies. And as people come to lay hands on him, he doesn't resist. In fact, he dies on a Roman cross. And even when he rises from the dead and the Holy Spirit's poured out and the church experiences all of this remarkable growth, we can't quite get past the sense that it doesn't look like what everyone seems to want it to. There are plenty of seasons where God's work doesn't look like what we want it to. And we can be tempted to ask the same question. Where's the kaboom? Where's the exciting stuff? Where's the big movement of God's work that we expected? If you find yourself asking that question even now, 2,000 years later, The world seems to be secularizing all around us at an alarming rate. The next generation seems to be less and less interested in the faith that they grew up with. Is this really the plan, Jesus? Is this really what you're going to do? Maybe we should revisit this. Maybe we should try some new strategies. Where is the kaboom? In our passage this morning, Jesus reminds his disciples and us about the nature of his kingdom. He compares it to a seed that goes into the ground. He pulls out this character, this man who tosses seed into the ground. And in due time, that seed cannot help but grow up into a full harvest. It inevitably does that. And so we have one big idea this morning. God is at work. God is at work. No matter how things appear to the human eye, God is at work. The parable that Jesus sets before us is really pretty straightforward. The kingdom of God is coming as surely as when someone drops seed into the ground. That seed sprouts and grows until it becomes a crop that is ready to be harvested. 
Once that first domino falls, Jesus said, all of the others are going to fall with it. All the others are sure to follow. Jesus wants us to have confidence that the kingdom of God really is coming in all of its fullness. So what does that mean for us this morning? I think there are three implications for us, three takeaways for our lives and ministries from the assurance that God is at work. Uh, Number one, God is at work so we can be patient. God is at work so we can be patient. Number two, God is at work so we can be humble. God is at work so we can be humble. And number three, God is at work so that we can be confident. God is at work so we can be patient. God is at work so we can be humble. And God is at work so we can be confident. Let's look at each of those uh, in turn. God is at work so we can be patient. Jesus gives us this parable as a reminder that the kingdom of God is coming, but it's coming in God's timing, not in ours. It's coming in God's way, not in ours. Um, I don't think I have to illustrate this. We are a people that are obsessed with instant gratification, are we not? Amazon two-day shipping has ruined my life, right? I completely come to expect everything that way. Anything I want at the press of a button, Turn to that girl from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Do you remember that girl? I want it now. That's who I am all the time. And our parable tells us that the kingdom's timing, God's kingdom timing, will be different. You don't just get to demand it uh, on your timing. Verse 27 tells us that this man casts the seed into the ground, and then he sleeps and he rises night and day. What's he doing as he goes to sleep, as he wakes back up? He's waiting, Right? The seed is sprouting and growing in a process that he doesn't have a hand in, that he doesn't even fully understand. He doesn't have control over the timing. He's done what he can do. He cast the seed into the ground, and now he has to wait. But what he knows is that eventually a harvest is coming. may not be on his timetable, but he knows that one is coming. In verse 28, Jesus says, The earth produces by itself. Uh, That Greek word there is automate. I I don't even have to tell you what that is. Automatic, right? We have the same word in English. Automatic. The earth, Jesus says, is automatic once the seed goes into the ground. And he says that's what God's kingdom is like. It is automatic. It's coming. The seed has been planted into the ground. God has started the process, and he will bring it to completion. Uh, I love what Robert Farrah Capon writes about this verse. Listen to what he says here. He says, Jesus says the earth, and all of it, mind you, good, bad, or indifferent, bears fruit of itself automatically. Just put the kingdom into the world, he says in effect, put it into any kind of world, not only into a world of hotshot responders or spiritual pros, but into a world of sinners, deadbeats, and assorted other poor excuses for humanity, which, interestingly enough, is the only world available anyway. And it will come up a perfect kingdom all by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. This should bring us comfort. Uh, God's kingdom is not dependent upon our methods, not dependent upon our efficiency. It is inevitable. It is certain. It is coming in its fullness. And that certainty of the coming kingdom ought to make us patient. Ought to make us patient with God as we wait on Him and His timing. Ought to make us patient with our neighbors with whom we are sharing the gospel ought to make us patient with ourselves as we are becoming more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. Uh, I've now expected or accepted at the ripe age of 30 that this is just as tall as I'm going to get. Like I'm not getting, that was a hard truth for me. I'm not getting taller than this. This is, there are no growth spurts left for me. But like many small kids, I was always obsessed with how tall I was. 
I, was all, I remember my parents having that door frame. I'm sure many of you do this, having the door frame where you mark how tall your kids are. And I wanted to measure every single day. I wanted to go to that door frame every single day to see if I had grown. I had zero patience. I would check myself, and I would get so frustrated because I wouldn't have grown the day before, it seemed like. This is taking forever, I thought. We've got to speed this thing up. It's funny to me now, my wife Mary is here, and our son Cooper is eight months old. Being a parent, um, it's funny how I react to my son's growth, because of course I have the exact opposite reaction to him. This is happening way, way, way too fast. So I think about him all the time. Uh, I was gone for a week uh, to Nashville last week, and of course, while I was gone, he started crawling, right? He was on the verge of it. He was on all fours, kind of doing the rocking back and forth thing, and I knew that he was going to crawl while I was gone, and he did. Uh, He did it while I was gone. It's happening way too fast. Half expecting for us to just find him out in the backyard smoking cigarettes next week. It's just happening way too quickly. What's the difference between a kid's perspective on growth and a parent's perspective on growth? When you're a kid, you're too close to it, right? You're obsessed with it. I want it to happen now. You have no perspective. But as you get older, once you become an adult, you, you start to know how time works. We've seen it. We've watched time get away from us. It goes by too fast, doesn't it? We've seen it slip through our fingers. We know that babies don't keep, and we don't want to wish any of it away. If anything, we'd like to slow it down. Right? Our kids want to speed it up, and we want to slow it down. We have a completely different perspective on things. I think in this passage, Jesus is inviting us into a different perspective about the kingdom. And that he is inviting us to believe that it's coming. It's coming as sure as everything. The same way that you know your kids are going to grow up, it's coming. It's automatic. And so we can afford to be patient. God is at work, is what Jesus is telling us. It's going to happen. What would it look like in our lives if we really believed that? If we really trusted that even when all appearances are to the contrary, that God is at work? I think at least in part, we would be more patient with ourselves. Uh, The kingdom of God entails far more than your personal growth, but it doesn't entail less than that. How many times have we looked at our own spiritual progress and been like me as a little kid, constantly running up to the doorframe, checking to see if we've grown at all, if we got any taller yesterday, being frustrated that it's not happening fast enough? In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul writes, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That he who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is going to finish the work that he has started in you? That the God who started a good work in you plans to finish it? Uh, We are in the middle of a bathroom renovation at the Nettleton House right now, and we are what I like to call the despair part of the project, where it just seems like this is never going to be done. Like, we're never going to have a working sink again. We're just going to have to build an outhouse in the backyard. That's that's the end of that. Um, Our sanctification can feel like that, right? Is this ever going to be done? Is this ever going to be complete? And the Bible assures us that yes. The answer to that is yes, God is at work. And he always finishes what he starts. God doesn't leave projects unfinished. He always finishes what he starts. And he intends to finish his work in your life. Later in Philippians, Paul writes um, that we are able to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why are we able to do that? He says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
that we are able to pursue our sanctification. We are able to put our sin to death, to put off the old ways of living, and to put on Jesus, to try and live more like Him. We're able to do that because God is at work in us, making those works effective. So all of that to say, don't give up just yet, Christian. Those of you who are in low seasons, uh, those of you who feel like you are tired and don't know how to stop being tired, God is at work in you. He is not done with His work in you. God is at work so we can be patient, but God is also at work, and so that means that we can be humble. The second point I want to make, God is at work so that we can be humble. Look back at verse 27, what it says there. It says, the man sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. This man has cast seed on the ground. A process he doesn't fully understand is taken over, and he goes to bed. He goes to bed, he gets up, and somehow that seed grows. And this much he knows, he's not doing this part. Right? He did his part. He threw the seed on the ground. And then something else took over. As we go about the work of God's kingdom, we're no different than that. Paul actually picks up on this uh, agricultural language in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. He writes, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. I think that believing that God is at work humbles us as we go about what Jesus commanded us to do. God is the one who gives the growth, not us. Why does that matter to us? Uh, I think it matters because getting this wrong leads us in a couple of different wrong directions. Number one, it can lead us to arrogance. Leads us to arrogance because we believe that everyone's salvation is dependent upon us. Right? If someone does get saved through our evangelistic efforts, all of a sudden that's a notch in our belt. We did it. And then if they don't get saved, of course we're failures who, can't, who just can't do anything right. That's the other way we can go wrong. That we can be uh, shamed into just not doing anything. Uh, we've booked everyone in our lives a one-way ticket to hell, we start to believe. Because everything's on us. We burden ourselves with these things. I think Jesus in this parable invites us to have some humility. The kingdom of God is not dependent upon our methods or our efficacy. This man sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. As a minister, he knows not how are some of the most comforting words in Scripture to me. Because I just don't know how it works sometimes. I never know how God is using what I'm doing. This is, of course, not an invitation to inactivity or laziness, right? Because the man has done the work. He threw seed out onto the ground. He did his part. And we, too, of course, have things to do as Christians, those of you who have believed on the Lord Jesus. He's invited you to follow him. He's invited you to tell your neighbors about him and his good news, to make disciples, to see people be baptized, teach them all that he commanded. But the question for us is, do we have the humility to echo Paul? That even as we sow seeds, even as we plant, even as we water, that God is the one who gives the growth. God is the one who is at work, changing people's hearts. We can't do that. We can't change people's hearts. God can. God promises to do that, in fact. Promises to remove people's heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Can you do that? I'll pay you money to tell me how. We can't do that. God does that. And so that, that brings us to a place of humility. We are able to confidently go forth and follow Jesus and do what he commanded, knowing that he is in charge of the results. God gives the growth. So God is a work that lets us be patient. It also lets us be humble, but it also lets us be confident. 
finally. God is at work so that we can be confident. In the Old Testament reading that we heard this morning uh, from Isaiah 55, we were reminded that God's word does not return to him void. God has a purpose for it. Uh, Paul tells us in Romans 10 that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Uh, that what we do, we have reason to be confident in our methods. That as we put people in front of God's word, something is happening. God is at work in those things. We have great reminders from Jesus. Matthew chapter 16, he tells Peter that the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church. That's, a, that's offensive language that Jesus is using. We're not waiting on hell to come after us. We're not putting up our fences. We are storming the gates. And Jesus says it won't be able to stand against us. That's the kind of confidence that we are allowed to have. One of the reasons that our denomination has sent me to the campus of Trinity University is because we have 100% confidence that God is at work. Not that I'm a super capable person or that I'm really gifted, right? That God is at work, that he uses the ordinary means. Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about the foolishness of gospel preaching, that we, we, through the folly of preaching, see people come to know Jesus. If I didn't believe that, if it were completely up to me, I would despair because I am not super persuasive. Just ask my students. I would quit. I would have no shot, no hope. But in this parable, Jesus tells us that as surely as a seed is cast into the ground and in due time grows up and is ripe for the harvest, just as surely is the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. Our ineptitude cannot stop it. Our frailty and our weakness cannot stop it. In fact, God is delighted to use our weakness, to be strong in it, to bring his kingdom on this earth. So we can be confident in sharing the gospel uh, that God is at work in that interaction in some way or another. We can be confident in participating in the ordinary means of grace and showing up to church and listening to the word preached and studying it on our own, partaking of the Lord's Supper, that God is at work in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Um, how would things be different if we began to treat the world, ourselves, and others as if this were true? as if God really is at work. I bring this up because I think what we tell ourselves really matters. The narratives that we tell ourselves, the stories that we tell ourselves about the world really matter. If we believe that what we're doing is fruitless, the world is going to hell in a handbasket, we've got no shot, that affects how you live. If on the other hand, you believe that God is at work, that he is redeeming people's lives from the pit, that there are prodigal sons that are still coming home and that we can be a part of that process, that changes how we live as well. Stories that we tell ourselves really, really matter. I came across a story in a book I was reading uh, recently. Back in 1965, this Harvard psychologist named Robert Rosenthal approached this California public elementary school and he offered to test their students. He said, I'm going to test your school students with this newly developed intelligence identification tool. And he called it the Harvard Test of Inflected Acquisition. Sounds really fancy. Uh, which could accurately predict which children would excel academically in the coming year. So this school, elementary school, obviously this Harvard psychologist shows up, offers to predict which kids are going to be smart. They're like, great, that sounds awesome, you should do that. So they agree, the test is administered to the entire student body. And a few weeks later, the teachers were provided with the names of the children. Uh, about 20% of the student body who had tested as really high potential. These particular children, the teachers were informed, were special. 
Though they may not have performed well in the past, the test indicated that they possessed an unusual potential for intellectual growth. Uh, the students, however, were not informed of the results. They had no idea that they had done this well. So the following year, uh, Rosenthal returns to measure how these high potential students had performed. And exactly as the test had predicted, the first and second grade high potentials had succeeded to a remarkable degree. They had done really, really well this year. The first graders gained 27 IQ points versus their peers who had just gained 12. The second graders gained 17 points versus the other kids who had just gained 7. In addition, these high potential kids thrived in ways that went way beyond their IQ measurements. They were described by their teachers as being more curious, being happier, better adjusted, more likely to experience success as adults. And the teachers actually reported that their job was better this year. They enjoyed teaching these smart kids more than any other year in the past. Okay, so I wonder how many of you have guessed at this point what the twist is, because you know one is coming, right? Here it is. The Harvard test of inflected acquisition is complete baloney. It was completely made up. In fact, the high potential kids had just been selected at random. They just picked some random kids. The real subject of the test was not the students, but the narratives that drive the relationship between the teachers and the students. Because something had to account for, why did these kids that were selected randomly actually do better? What happened, Rosenthal discovered, was replacing one story, these are just average kids, with a new one, these are special kids, destined to succeed, actually reoriented the teachers and how they related to students, so that they started to guide the students toward that future. It didn't matter that the story was false or that the children were, in fact, randomly selected. The simple, glowing idea, this child has unusual potential for intellectual growth, aligned the teacher's motivations. It motivated them, and therefore the kids did better. How much more ought the gospel to shape uh, our approach to the world? Uh, these narratives that we believe shape how we live. That story, you're smarter, you're special, was not true. And yet, because they lived like it was true, it actually came into reality. But we have something better than that. We have a true story. We have a Savior who lived a perfect life, who died for our sins on the cross, who rose from the dead three days later, and said that the kingdom is coming. We have a true story. How would it shape how we live? How would things be different if we began to treat the world, ourselves, and others as if God really is at work? as if every person you meet might be a person that God has chosen to redeem. As if you yourself are a person that God is going to finish his work in. And as if this world is a place where the kingdom is coming, just like it is in heaven. What if your sanctification, your child's salvation, your ministry success is in the hand of a loving and gracious God who's working all things together for those who are called according to his purpose? How would you change how you live? We have a true story. We have a better story to live, and it ought to change how we approach the world. God is at work, and so we can be as well. Let me pray for us. God in heaven, we do thank you that you are a God who is at work. You are a God who has not left us uh, in our sin and in our failure, but that you have had a plan before the foundations of the earth to redeem your people that you had a plan that you would take on flesh, that you would live a perfect life that we could not live, that we had been called to live and failed to live, 
that you would die the death for sin, sins that you didn't commit and that we did, that you would take that punishment upon yourself, that we might be redeemed, that you would rise again from the dead three days later to let us know that it worked, that the dominoes are falling and the kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven. So we pray now this morning, God, that you would make in us uh, hearts that are patient, hearts that are humble, hearts that are confident, that believe that your kingdom is coming in your timing, that we just don't have eyes to see it all the time, that are humble, Lord, that would um, give the burdens of trying to save everyone we know over to you and trust that you are doing good work and that you are using us to do it, and that we would be confident. Lord, that we would share the gospel with our neighbors, with strangers, with everyone we encounter, believing that you are at work in that, that you are calling people to yourself, that your word does not return to you void. God, this can only happen uh, as you work. I pray even this morning, God, it is possible that there are some here who do not believe, who have not yet turned to you in repentance and faith. God, we pray that you would be at work this morning uh, turning them to yourself. That if you really are there, if all of what we've said this morning is true, would you open their eyes to see it? Would you reveal that uh, to them? God, now I pray that you would send us out this week uh, to be your people, so that we would be on mission, that your kingdom would come inch by inch, and that you would use us to do it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.